Hello boys and girls ladies and gentlemen this is Nishant and welcome to another episode of the Nishant Garg show the mission of the show is to spread awareness on mindfulness practices and my job on the show is to invite world class performers to share the practices to live a fulfilled life today's guest is Michael Michael is the world's leading authority on the application of genius thinking to personal and organizational development he works with visionary leaders to support them in nurturing more innovative and human-centered cultures and to inspire and equip them with the creative thinking tools and conscious communication strategies that help translate ideas into reality. He is the author of 16 books including How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Discover Your Genius, Innovate Like Edison and The Art of Connection. His books have been translated into 25 languages and have sold more than 1 million copies. In this episode Michael talks about how to develop creative thinking tools for achieving high performance. He also discusses about his meditation practice, what makes him happy and fulfilled, the books that have inspired him and a lot more. Keep listening. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. My pleasure. What did you have at the breakfast? For breakfast today? Yeah. I made some really good coffee uh, in a French press. And then I had some goat milk yogurt with organic pears, organic coconut, pecans, a little bit of vanilla and and cinnamon. <laughs> <laughs> does any of those ingredients help you in your creative thinking <laughs> well my creative thinking helps me put together those ingredients <laughs> <laughs> we talk about thinking everybody talks about thinking this thinking that and we talk about creative thinking what's the difference yeah. between just thinking and creative thinking well that, that's a that's a really important question because people haven't many people haven't thought much about what they mean when they say thinking even though most people think they know what everybody means so we say that somebody's good at thinking and usually what they're talking about is logical thinking which is indeed very important you don't leave home without it <laughs> <laughs> or mathematical thinking thinking but we learned that there are different types of thinking and that the, the best thinkers are skilled at the different types of thinking so the simplest way to think about types of thinking is creative and critical or logical and imaginative because really creative thinking ultimately is an expression of the marriage of logic and imagination So logical thinking follows the, the laws and the rules of logic. Premises have to be validated. There has to be a logical flow to conclusions. Imaginative thinking is where we just think of lots of things. We go for quantity of ideas. We shift into an associational mode of thinking rather than a logical mode of thinking. But for that imaginative thinking to really ultimately become creative then we marry it with the logical thinking we say okay we generated all these ideas which ones might have some some value might help improve the quality of life or help us solve a problem or write a beautiful poem or a story so creative thinking really we we talk that about that phrase a lot creative thinking is really the marriage of logical critical thinking and imaginative exploratory thinking how do we know which thinking to use at what point well for following the laws of logic which we'd like to see more of actually in the world today especially by people in positions of uh, responsibility 
uh, you know, those laws are, are, are pretty clear. If we are doing imaginative thinking, which most people need to learn how to do. Most people, if they're trained in a university system, if they are schooled according to mathematical reasoning, which is a really important element of education, then they want to learn, they say, I want to learn to be more creative. So what we really teach them is imaginative thinking. And we teach them, think of lots of things. That's, you know, the first practice for doing more imaginative thinking is to go for quantity of ideas because then you stimulate your association. The more ideas you think of, the more ideas you can think of. And even though many of them might ultimately prove to be illogical and useless, it's actually really logical to explore new possibilities through sheer exponential generation of lots of possibilities. The secret then is to pause and analyze them and start coming up with criteria for judging them and moving back and forth between these modalities. Of course, there are plenty of other people who just do a <coughs> part of the associative thinking. They're just dreaming and, and coming up with lots and lots and lots of ideas but they never get around to analyzing them and considering which ones might be most useful. So there's this, this harmony, this balance between, I call it another way to think about it, a convergent thinking where we're focusing, analyzing, critiquing, divergent thinking where we're looking for lots of new possibilities and quantity of ideas. And then what we want is the harmony between convergent and divergent thinking so I actually made up a word for that. I call it synvergent thinking. Synvergent. Synvergent thinking, yes. Interesting. I would like to come back to this topic of thinking in a while. And before that, I would like to ask you, where did you grow up and how was your childhood like? Mm. I grew up in the U.S., uh, in New Jersey. And I suppose it was relatively 50s, 60s, all the normal kinds of cultural exposures. I was around when the, you know, the Beatles were first on Ed Sullivan. <laughs> so that's, you know, if you want to peg me, it's like the Beatles were the big influences. I was a little bit after, you know, Frank Sinatra, that was my parents' generation. Elvis Presley, uh, if I, I didn't have any older siblings, but that would have been them. So I was the Beatles. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, along with the Beatles, you know, there was a lot of questioning in society, a lot of interest in what now is known as the human potential movement. And I guess I just, uh, that seemed to me very appealing from the time I was 15, 16. I started reading a lot of the the books of you know, Abraham Maslow, Victor Frankl. I started reading those kinds of books, Rollo May, The Courage to Create. And it just seemed to me that my calling was to explore how people could develop their potential, how I could develop my potential. And, and coming back to your initial question about thinking, it seemed to me that the world was populated by people who weren't really thinking. They were just reacting with prejudice and based on their preconceptions and what was in their own self-interest. It was a very polarizing time too. It was the Vietnam War. So it's a time very similar to what we're at right now. I sent that article out yesterday by Steven Pinker, who's a brilliant linguist, yes. author, wrote The Better Angels of Our Nature and Enlightenment Now. Uh, he, he he posted an article about what's worse, 1968 or now. And the, the, the article was basically saying, well, so far, 1968 was worse, but you know, stay tuned because this could get even worse than 1968. But the point is, you know, in, in 19, 
68, I was 16, quite impressionable. I saw all this divisiveness and I really was, I really thought, I want to learn how, how we can find new solutions, how we can look after the needs of the common good, the, the what's, what's driving people instead of just bifurcating the world into our side and their side, good guys and bad guys. It seemed a little bit, even at 16, that seemed to me uh, not a viable way of looking at, at life. So I, I became really intrigued with how do we, how do we cultivate better thinking? How do we develop our human potential? So that's what I studied in college. That's what I studied in graduate school. And that's what I've been focusing on ever since. And creative thinking leads to high performance. Well, we hope so. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I called my company, High Performance Learning. So I figured. And coming back to when you were 15 or 16, what book did you read at that point? Or do you remember any instance? Sure, absolutely. The most, the most influential book I read is called Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. He was, uh, he was a physician, a psychiatrist. He was imprisoned in a concentration camp during World War II. And in the midst of the most terrible situation imaginable where all of his freedom was taken from him, he had an epiphany in which he realized that the ultimate freedom could never be taken from him. And that was the freedom, his inner freedom. And he became this tremendously inspiring figure to the people around him, helped many people survive. He wrote this incredible book under those dire circumstances. And the focus of the book is, is organize your life around a higher purpose. And it's, it's Nietzsche's old, you know, line that, if we have a, a, a why to live, we can deal with any how. So what's your reason? What's what's your purpose for living? And I was blessed to read that when I was 15 or 16 years old. And I thought, yeah, the most important thing is to, is to be clear about what, what one's purpose is and to have a purpose that goes beyond just one's own self-aggrandizement, uh, some purpose to make a difference in the world. And uh, that that really set me on my my journey. Would you recommend the same book to somebody or some kid in their teenage life these yes. days? Yes, absolutely. I recommend, I mean, in the books that I've written, uh, obviously I, I wouldn't write my own books if I didn't recommend my own books because what I try to, <laughs> I mean, I, trans, I try to translate a lot of the greatest wisdom that I've ever received from all the people that I've studied with both live and virtually over my whole life. So when I write a book, I'm trying to distill that wisdom and make it as accessible as it can be to people right now. And all my books have recommended reading. So you know, people say to me, well, what should I read? I say, well, read my books and then read, go to the bibliography and you have my lifetime of of curation available to you, which I'm also happy to talk about now. So yes, read Please. Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frank- Frankl. Read, read the books of uh, Abraham Maslow. Read the books of Rollo May. Uh, those, are, those are some good places to start. You have written 16 books. Do you have any personal favorite? Yeah, that's always, you know, that's always like, that, the question is like, uh, you have 16 children, which is your favorite? <laughs> Uh, but the answer is the most successful child, <laughs> you know, the one who became a doctor and, and cured cancer. That's my most favorite. That's my favorite child. Uh, no, I, I love them all equally. Uh, my most successful book by far is How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci, Seven Steps to Genius Every Day. That came out in 1998, and it's still still uh, selling strongly around the world. It's in 25 languages. And I think the reason is that Leonardo da Vinci is a global archetype for human potential. 
He's the ultimate Renaissance person. So people aspire, people who aspire to utilize their potential, they, they, re, they resonate with the idea of thinking like Leonardo da Vinci. So that, that book has a, I mean, obviously I, I'm, I have a special fondness for it because it paid for my house. <laughs> but I love, you know, all of them. I really, it's fun as an author, you know, I, my very first book came out 40 years ago and it's called Body Learning and Introduction to the Alexander Technique. And I'm going to release a new edition of it in the fall. But I was reading through the original thing I wrote when I was a graduate student. You know, it was originally my master's thesis, and I was reading through it very critically. And I said, you know what? This stands the test of time. I feel good about this. And in the new edition, I'm not going to change what I wrote in the first edition. I'm just going to add a whole new section because I don't want to interfere with the... When I wrote it, I was so earnest. There was such purity and passion and curiosity for my subject that that comes through in the tone. So I wanna, I'm gonna write a new forward. I'm gonna say, hey, I'm not changing the, the main text of the original book because I want you to get the quality of innocence and, and earnestness that I brought to this subject. And then I'm gonna add you know, another 40 pages on a commentary on what I've learned in the last 40 years and how it might be helpful to you. back to the power of thinking in this world everybody talks about positive thinking negative thinking and some talk about creative thinking i would like to hear more of your ideas how do you set aside some time to just think yes yes well uh, well thank you for bringing that up because if you know we would just reframe that a little bit we say if you want to be if you want to be creative and innovative. If you want to generate new ideas that have either subjective value, that's my definition of creative, or have objective value, that's my definition of innovative. But if they have value, you want idea, new ideas that have value. So the, in innovation, we have the, the nova, which means new. So if it's creative, if it's innovative, you're coming up with something new, something that, ha that is fresh. So that's an important ability for all of us as individual people. It's an important ability for businesses, for companies. It's an important ability for societies. Can we find creative solutions to many challenges that we face? So in order to do that, instead of bifurcating between positive thinking and negative thinking because I don't I don't really recommend either of those <laughs> <laughs> why <laughs> instead I call it the angel's advocate and the devil's advocate <clears throat> so the angel's advocate is when you look at the upside of a proposition or an idea. You look at the potential benefits. The devil's advocate is when you look at the rational negatives of a situation. You look at the liabilities, the risks, the potential costs. And it's important to do both of these when you're assessing any kind of idea or proposition or initiative if you just do the angel's advocate and just look at the good possibilities and benefits and so on, but you don't think about the risks, then you will be blindsided. You will make huge mistakes that could have been prevented. If you only do devil's advocate thinking, you only look at what can go wrong, you'll never try anything new. You'll be paralyzed. So creative thinking or just 
intelligent thinking requires a harmony between the more optimistic orientation and the more critical pessimistic orientation and the freedom to move between them. And that, that's, that's, that's the real key is having a self-awareness to know. So, cause some people, we all know that some people just look at the, you know, the, the pessimistic side of everything. Other people look at the bright side of everything, but the smartest people look at both sides of everything and then make their decision. Are you talking about considering the upside and downside of every idea or of any thing in life? Well, that's, that's the simplest way to say, yeah. And that's only, but that's part of an overall approach to, I call it solution finding where first, first define what your question is, define what your problem is, define what it is you want to solve and, do some homework, do some research, collect the data, ask yourself if you have any prejudices or preconceptions that prevent you from looking at it in an intelligent way. I call this the preparation phase of solution finding. Then you go into the generation phase where you think of lots of ideas. Then maybe the most important phase is where you go for a walk in the woods and don't even think about it because that's where people get their best ideas when they're not trying to. (laughs) Or or waking up first thing in the morning. I call that the incubation phase. Then you go into the evaluation mode and that's where you look at the angel's advocate and the devil's advocate. Then you hand it over to the judge who has to make the decision. And now you're ready for the implementation phase where you have to actually focus on how you're going to implement the idea. So preparation, generation, incubation, evaluation, and implementation are five phases of solution finding. And they require different skills. And most importantly, enough self-awareness to recognize which mode you're in and when it's appropriate to shift from one mode to another. And that's something of an art. That's, you know, that's a big part of how I run my business. What, what is high performance learning? What do I do? I, I go in and I help businesses. I, I facilitate that process for them. I teach them that process. First, I have to guide them through it, teach them the tools to utilize in each phase of the process and then I coach them so that they can do it themselves. And then, 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 they, know, then they know how to think, <laughs> at least better than they did before. Should we apply this five-generation phase, or I should say this framework, to all kinds of thinking, or this is just suitable for any innovative thinking? I, I think it's relevant to any, any innovation, anytime you're looking for a, for a solution that isn't just, you know, we, we don't need to do creative thinking. If, if the question is what is two plus two, we don't need to do creative thinking. Uh, it, if the question is how do I put on my pants? Well, if you want to do an art piece <laughs> putting on your pants, then we could play with different ways of doing it. But if you want to just put on your pants in order to actually now with, with, people doing so much on zoom. A lot of people aren't even putting their pants on. (laughs) And as a listener to this podcast, I'm thinking this could be a lot of time consuming. If I'm going through these phases for some innovation, this seems a lot of time consuming. But that's the point is uh, for things for which we already have very acceptable, useful solutions. We don't necessarily need to use the cliche. We don't have to reinvent the wheel, Uh, but we might, want to be able to give it a new spin. And that's, that's where these phases come in. Uh, in the incubant phase, you mentioned about going to the woods. Do you have other practices to have those creative thinking? Yes, of course. Uh, the main idea is if you, want, if you want to get the most out of the incubation phase, which, by the way, if you look at the history of genius, almost every great genius attributes their breakthrough idea 
to some moment when they were in nature, relaxed, you know, Archimedes in the bathtub, uh, Einstein dreaming on a hillside, uh, imagining surfing out to, on a sunbeam, uh, Newton seeing the prism effect from, from light uh, and looking at the rainbows and stimulating his imagination. Uh, so if you want that in your life, first, you know, Newton, Einstein, Archimedes, we're studying things with great intensity. So you're unlikely to get some breakthrough, super creative idea just by walking in nature. You have to be actually engaged intensively with a problem. You have to be searching, seeking, learning, questioning. And the more you do that, the more you stimulate your 100 billion brain cells to get cooking on whatever the problem happens to be. But the breakthrough doesn't usually come in the laboratory or the office. It comes usually when people are by themselves and not trying to get a solution when they're relaxed and receptive. So if you can't walk in nature, you can just, lie, just rest in bed, spend a little extra time, especially first thing in the morning or in the middle of the night, have a notebook next to the bed. That's one of the most receptive times, literally in the shower or the bath. So have your notebook right next to your shower or your bath. Uh, it's a wonderful uh, way to incubate is uh, to meditate, to do yoga, to do Taiji or Qigong. Uh, so any kind of, uh, contemplative practice when you engage the body in a way that helps you quiet the mind, you make yourself more receptive. So Do you meditate? Of course. Yeah. That's interesting. So what's your meditation practice look like? Well, it's evolved. You know, I started meditating when I was 19. So that's a long time ago. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, my meditation practice has evolved and, and what it involves now is I do, uh, I do 20 minutes of standing meditation every day. I do Qigong and Taiji. So there are moving forms of moving meditation. I do yoga nidra most nights before I go to sleep, either, a I mean, I usually, the thing is, I usually never make it through the whole thing because I'm usually asleep by the time it's over, <laughs> which is why you do it, because uh, it does help with, the, with better sleep. And then, you know, my, my, my actually, the way I really view life is meditation is, isn't even th a thing we do. It's actually what we are. So whenever one remembers who one is, one connects with the meditation that is always present from which all things emerge and that's available to us at all times. So meditation is happening at all times with all of us. It's just that most of us don't notice it. <laughs> In fact, Ray Dalio talks about meditation. He performs meditation twice every day. Who does? Ray Dalio. Oh, yeah, of course. Well, that's the thing is that I started teaching meditation to my corporate clients in 1979. And it's nice to see that it's caught on. <laughs> do you receive any resistance from corporate executives to do meditation? Uh, not really, because those are not the ones who hire me. <laughs> <laughs> the other ones who are hiring me are hiring me because they want to learn this sort of thing. So they're paying me, so they you know they usually pay attention. I mean, of course, I'm only I'm laughing. Over the years, plenty, especially in the beginning. I mean, now every company has some mindfulness program and a yoga studio, whatever. Forty years ago, they just never even heard of this. Uh, but even then, I, I was I. I tried to give it to them in a very logical, scientific framework, and I'd always say to look be leaving that aside, just be practical. I'm going to try this. We're just explore using your imagination 
your breathing and see if, just notice if you feel better. If you feel calmer, happier, you might want to do more of it. If you don't, you don't have to do it. So just let's try this for five minutes, see how you feel. People say, hey, I feel better. I say, well, duh. <laughs> and speaking of happiness, how do you define happiness in your life? Well, you know, I guess that's a little bit like when they asked the one of the Supreme Court justices, how do you how do you define pornography? <laughs> he said, uh, I don't have a definition, but I know it when I see it. That's how I feel about happiness. <laughs> Could you elaborate more on that? What well, do you feel when you see it? Well, uh, uh, it, it, it involves laughter. Uh, it involves humor. It involves presence. It involves not not investing energy in having things be different than the way they are. Not Which, taking it too seriously as well. By the way, that, you know, and so people people say, "Well, does that mean you accept injustice or?" This is unacceptable. No, it doesn't mean that behaviors are, I'm not happy about bad behavior, which is quite prevalent at the moment at lots of different levels of society. That's, there are many things that are within our circle of concern around which we do not have immediate direct influence and people who focus all the time on their circle of concern tend to be unhappy because they're constantly focused on things around which they, they can't really make any measurable difference. So one of the big secrets of life is learn to operate within your circle of influence. Where can you have influence? Where can you do something that is in alignment with your principles and your values and so on? And underlying all of that is wanting, when we struggle against the way things are in our inward being, we just make ourselves miserable. And we're often less able to actually respond to them. When we see things as they are in any given moment, with a sense of inner freedom, my my experience is that we are more poised to respond in a more intelligent way. So that that's when you know people say, "Look within." Where is within? Uh, it's is it in your toe? Is it in your? <laughs> is it in your lower belly? Is it in your head? Uh, it's not a thing, and th- that's the, that's where this is a little tricky. People are always looking from a thing perspective. But really, did you have to learn? Go ahead. Did you have to learn this principle to look at the things as it is, or does it come to you naturally? I think it comes to some people naturally, people who are really, you know, people who are spiritually gifted just know this. I just say I've studied with lots and lots of teachers who help me strip away the barriers to just being in that being more uh, let's see what's the best you know we don't have really good english words for all of this <laughs> but getting getting what getting out of the way getting the ego out of the way getting the 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 mind as it norm as it habitually functions out of the way being able to 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 have Inner, inner, it goes back to Viktor Frankl, this inner freedom that I can, I'm not my mind, I'm not my body, I'm not my thoughts, I'm not my feelings. So what am I? <laughs> that's a great question. Right? That's the, well, that's, that is life's most important question. And, and if, you, if you've, once you... The first real awakening is when you, for people, is when they realize, oh, okay, well, wait a minute. Uh, I ha- these thoughts happen, but there's an awareness that's aware of these thoughts. So what is that? What is the source of these thoughts? 
and there's this body and it's always changing. Sometimes it delivers what is interpreted as pleasure. And sometimes it seems to be the instrument of what is called pain. Yet, what is it that experiences the pleasure and the pain and the sensations that go along with the presence of this, this thing we call a body? And then there are these emotions and they, they come and go, sometimes like a roller coaster. But what is it that what is it what is the source of the experience of the emotions of the thoughts of the physical sensations and could that source offer clues to deeper creativity to deeper happiness to deeper love and joy and you can figure out what what my answer is to that question <laughs> <laughs> And somebody who is listening to this podcast, they might be thinking, are these guys talking about spirituality? Well, there's the thing is spirituality, again, is our language is limited because we think of spirituality like it's some separate pursuit from let's go over here to you know the business world or your relationships or your finances or and then you know, and then you know when we have time, you know, maybe we'll we'll do some some looking into spirituality or maybe when we retire or whatever, but there's nothing else but spirituality. <laughs> That's a great way to put at it. Right. Uh, and, you know, we, 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 like, we tend to think that the, the dominant uh, paradigm or construct, certainly in, in, in the Western world, but much more so in the East as well uh, is that we live in a material world, that we are material objects. And then there's this little epiphenomenon of tiny little windows of individual awareness or consciousness that then are snuffed out with death. And that's that. <laughs> what a depressing scenario. So, you know, in other words, we all grew up with this idea that there's one real material world and lots of different individual tiny consciousnesses. But uh, what if there's one universal consciousness that's being refracted through lots of different prisms to create these seemingly separate individual experiences? Uh, and and so that's that's a that's a fun question to contemplate. high performance a lot of people can achieve high performance they can get into creative thinking mode do you think sustaining high performance and sustaining creative thoughts for a long period of time can be done without being spiritual or having some spiritual practices in our life well yeah those are two so everybody's spiritual so but not everybody, but not everybody that. has a practice. Some people don't need them. You know, some people, you know, the ultimate practice is just stop all of your obsessive attachment to the illusion. Which <laughs> is difficult. <laughs> just, it's not really a doing thing. You don't have to, I don't think it's, I used to think when I was younger, I used to think you had to, you had to meditate every day. You had to do these practices. You had to do selfless service. You had to do all these things. And that if you diligently you know, did the meditation twice a day, a lot of my friends twice a day, and you did all these practices, and then you know something would happen, and then you'd be this really spiritual person. You'd be really... And I, you know, <laughs> I, I know people... I mean, literally, I know people who were with you know the Maharishi for years. And then I watched them and I said, well, you know, they're lovely people, but they're not suddenly Maharishis themselves. You know, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> they did everything he told them to do. And, you know, they were the same neurotic people that they always had been, maybe with slightly lower blood pressure. Uh-uh. So, <laughs> so, and by the way, I'm, I'm, we're, we're laughing, we're joking, we're having fun because you can see that I'm, you know, my, that's is that's, a big part. That's perfect. Path. That's is, perfect. Is, is the path of 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 
laughter and play is a big part of, of uh, my path. And, and I also, by the way, I'm an advocate of the idea that the ha-ha and the aha are our first cousins. So laughing and, and being crazy. <laughs> uh-huh. together, ha-ha and aha, get it? Uh, uh, so, so, so I'm not saying, of course, we shouldn't do practices, uh, but who, you know, who is it who's practicing? That's the practice that intrigues me the most. And this, look, uh, I didn't make this up. Uh, it's ancient, ancient, ancient wisdom. And one of the most amazing things about the world today is, you know, I watch, I mean, I watch YouTubes of Ramana Maharshi most nights before I go to sleep. And you can virtually study with, you know, I have, I have his, I've got his book right here. I got his pictures right above you. It's right behind my, my study here from where we're speaking. And I can access many of the greatest teachers for free on YouTube every night. I mean, how, what an amazing, miraculous world. So the, the question is, though, how are you? What's your choice about what you're going to click on? Are you going to click on uh, uh, Ramana Maharshi or, or Neem Karoli Baba? Are you going to click on some ad or some you know, toxic nonsense or hypnotic rubbish? So that's where you decide the kind of the, the quality of experience that's going to be flowing through awareness. And that's just, that's just another thing for us all to contemplate is because today I say more than ever before it does. It, it is wise to be the curator of your soul. It is wise to consider the impulses, the, images, the ideas, the level of beauty of what you what you choose to engage with, just because the default setting of social media and the so-called news isn't transcendent, universal, higher consciousness, high-performance, uplifting, beautiful wisdom. It's lowest common denominator, reptilian, greed, fear-driven rubbish. So that, you know, that, that's something, that's a practice. If you want high-performance uh, uh, in your life, if you want beauty, if you want happiness, uh, be careful what you click on. <laughs> that is so powerful what you mentioned high performance is not just achieving things achieving material things in life it's a whole person body it's inner and outer being not just achieving things or getting big house getting great car it's not yeah. just that achievement I'm, and look i've always my joke has always been if you're going to be miserable, it's probably better to be rich. But there's no guarantee that by being rich, you're not going to be miserable. So <laughs> if you're miserable, okay, it might be better to live in a big house in which you're miserable than a small house. But you're still miserable. And, and there's, no, there's no necessary correlation. But why not be rich? and happy and fulfilled so that you can take that wealth and uplift humanity, whether you do that through your business or you just, you do that through your, your, your everyday life. So, you know, one of the big, look, it's, this is a really simple thing. Uh, caring for helping uplifting others is one of the great keys to happiness while we are dancing through whatever this this uh, phenomena is that we call life so you know so when in doubt help other people uh, when in doubt be more caring and more loving and you you i mean i 
I've learned this, you know, just, again, I, I started out as very good at, at achievement and focusing on and high performance and getting what I wanted to get and so on and so forth. But it just, it just, I could just, I'm just paying attention to life. I'm just looking at who's the, who are the happiest people? Who are the most fulfilled? Who comes to your mind? Who is happy, rich, successful, fulfilled? Wow. Um, of course, you. <laughs> you comes to my mind. <laughs> well, who, who comes to mind? I'd say, you know, I, I recently, my last book is called The Healing Organization, Awakening the Conscience of Business to Help Save the World which I co-authored with uh, Professor Raj Sisodia, uh, who's the co-founder of Conscious Capitalism. And in our book, we interviewed, we interviewed lots of people, but we wrote stories of 25 business leaders who focused their business on a higher healing purpose. And these are very successful people who put others first. They put the welfare of others first. They put the welfare of their communities first. And what's happening is uh, they're making more money. <laughs> uh, what a concept. You know, once you knew that it was possible, that uh, you, would, you would be more successful business-wise, financially, if you creatively looked after the welfare of all your stakeholders. So my co-author Raj did the, the, he's a business school professor and he did the research demonstrating the, the, just the business case for this stakeholder-centered, higher-purpose approach. And, and it's just a better way. It's a better way to do business, even in, just in terms, just in financial terms, let alone the fact that people love these kinds of companies. So the people who are the leaders of these kinds of companies, you know, there's a company we profiled in the book. It's a grocery store chain in in. Texas, and they do all this amazing community service. They do, especially if there's a disaster, they have their own disaster relief units that get there before the government does and take care of people and bring them food and water. And people volunteer for this from the company. And, you know, the, the, the chairman of this company is a member of what's called the Giving Pledge, which was started by Bill Gates and Warren Buffett. His family has a net worth of $10 billion, and the Giving Pledge uh, members have pledged to give at least half of their net worth to worthy causes. And if you look at the picture of the gentleman, uh, his name is Charles Butt, who is the chairman of this company, I haven't met him. I haven't met him personally. We talked to his CEO uh, for the interviews, but you know, he looks like a really, really happy guy to me. So, and, and that was our impression of, of, of the, these folks who are leading these kinds of organizations. I have, I have a client in New Jersey who runs a company like this. Uh, he was profiled in the book. He looks after the welfare of all the stakeholders even now, you know, it's a hard economic time here with the pandemic. He had to uh, make a bunch of, of, of cutbacks, temporary cutbacks in his staff. But he's reaching out to those people every day. He's being as generous as he possibly can be. The people love him. They give a tremendous amount to charity. It's a, you just feel it's a caring business. And he's already rebounding getting huge customer loyalty. They were named one of America's great places to work. Uh, and he's a happy guy. Uh, so I know lots of people like that. And yes, of course, I aspire to be one of them. Amazing stories. I, I'm definitely going to get some of your books and I would highly recommend listeners to get your books for sure. I would like to ask you, how can we find that balance between being appreciative of what we already have and moving towards those dreams, big joint dreams, goals, and massive success? Yes. Well, it's, it's, it's a wonderful question too, because 
if we if we stay with this simple bifurcating way of look it's just it's harder for people to, you know there's typologies where you think of eight times of people or 16 kinds of people but let's just stick with the two kinds of people <laughs> <laughs> what are those kinds right so some people are very achievement oriented and they're go-getters and they're they're just out there erring on the side of doing something other people are more reflective they're more receptive they're more likely to err on the side of not taking action so one of the principles of self evolution or fulfillment or utilizing one's potential and discovering balance in this lifetime is to do the opposite of whatever your your basic tendency is so in other words if you're a super achievement oriented go-getter person who's focused on setting and achieving goals it's probably important for you to open up more space for gratitude and feeling and allowing things as they are and appreciating things as they are if you're somebody who's so naturally appreciative of the beauty of how things are and you feel grateful but you're not really that motivated to you know get off the couch and actually do anything <laughs> then you probably need to get off the couch and do something <laughs> so <laughs> so that could be i don't want to generalize yeah. that if somebody is super grateful that is amazing quality so oh, yeah. appreciative of somebody already has and not taking any action that could be complacency you know we are content sure. you're not we don't want to go to the next level amen and that's fine too like and that's the thing you don't have to go to the proverbial next level level in order to be fulfilled there's plenty of people uh, we think of a normal career path it just people think of it as this path of achievement and you you want to go up the ranks of the company or or the you know you want to start one company and then sell it and then take the money and create a bigger company and just keep on doing that blah 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 but that's just one path for some people that might be the path that they want for other people they make enough money until they go on vacation for a couple of years or go study something new or 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 learn something and then they go off and do that and then they say okay I need more money and they come back and they figure out a way to 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 work and then they go off and live life Uh, so that's just that's another model and there's a lot of other people i call it there's a, a steady state expert they gain a certain level of skill in something that they love to do and they don't want to be the head of that department they just want to be the engineer who does a particular job because they, they love doing it or they want to be the carpenter who builds this shelving and they just want to do that for the rest of their lives with you know they want to do it with excellence and mastery but they don't want to learn how to be an electrician or how to be head of all the carpenters uh, because it's it's a whole different skill to be a manager than it is to be somebody who does a task or a skill and not everybody wants to be a manager so part of the part of the secret here is figure out what what's in what's the fulfillment of your particular nature but the general principle is figure out what what's in your nature and what and separate what's in your nature and what are your habits and then consider the opposite of your habits if you're interested in exploration and growth it's a dance it's and a dance it, it requires a lot of self reflection taking action failing moving forward moving backward and there is no right or wrong answer it just requires a lot of time a lot of silence yes michael do you have any or i should ask you do you practice gratitude journaling or any sort of journaling in your day to day life yes so i practice uh, i have 
here on my desk, I have all kinds of different journals. I have journals. Uh, I keep a journal for each of my clients. And then I have a little journal here where I don't, you know, the truth is I, I do a gratitude meditation every morning when I, when, before I get out of bed. And it's my favorite way to start the day. And it's just, now it happens spontaneously. When I first started it, I, I was writing down the things I was grateful about. I've, that's something I've recommended to people in a couple of the books that I've written. There's a lot of research that shows that it strengthens your immune system. It strengthens your perceived sense of well-being, which is a fancy word for happiness. <laughs> and now it just, I just, it happens naturally. So I just, and then, and you know, you, through the day, I, I've learned, I express my, my sense of gratitude frequently. Love it. I'm so, grateful to you for this wonderful conversation. I'm grateful too, sir. <laughs> Do you carry any journal to capture your thoughts, just your thoughts? And I heard this from John C. Maxwell, that he has a notebook everywhere in his house. Whenever any idea comes, he just writes it down. He has it in his car, in his house, in his office, everywhere. Yes. I mean, that's, that's, that's one of the things I've been teaching people. Uh, for the last 40 years, it's, it's, if you read any one of my books, it'll tell you to first thing you do is get a notebook. It's the first thing we have you do have one everywhere. Be prepared to write, write it down. This is what, you know, look at Leonardo da Vinci, Bill Gates paid $30.8 million for 17 pages of Leonardo's notebooks way back in 1994. Leonardo just when he had an idea, he wrote it down. So did Thomas Edison, so did Marie Curie, so did every great genius who ever lived. Uh, the average person wakes up at four o'clock in the morning to have, they have an idea, but they think I'm no genius, so they go back to sleep. <laughs> but, what but, what but time do you wake up? Yeah, so write it down. Absolutely. Keep that notebook. Michael, what time do you wake up in the morning? Uh, I don't have a set time every day. I usually... It depends what I'm doing that day. You know, I don't have a job. <laughs> uh, I run my own business. So it depends what I've got going on. I, it's, uh, I, you know, I, I usually aim to get a full eight hours of sleep. I find that I function best. So it depends what time I go to sleep. But, you know, I, I mean, I usually, I usually go to sleep reasonably early, 11 o'clock and, get up around seven. I, you know, if I, if I had to average it out, <clears throat> sometimes I stay up a little later and then I sleep a little later. Sometimes I go to sleep a little earlier, but I might, you know, then I might get a little extra sleep. So. That is wonderful, Michael. And I'm going to ask you a duh question. Sure. I know everybody can find you online, but where can they find you? Ah, uh, so yes, if people, Come to michaelgelb.com. That's G-E-L-B, michaelgelb.com. Uh, and what would be great, people can come to michaelgelb.com. We have a free newsletter. We don't, we don't bombard people, but we do keep you informed with uh, what we're doing. And, and we're offering more, as you might imagine, online opportunities. And we have a fabulous uh, video course coming out soon, the complete How to Think Like Leonardo da Vinci video course uh, will be available soon. And I'm super excited about it. And then I also have another website called healingleader.com, healingleader.com. And that's my website for people who are interested in engaging me for executive or life coaching. So that's healingleader.com and michaelgelb.com. I didn't know that you provide life coaching as well. Yeah, I do. It's, it's fun because, I, I, you know, it's great because I've been doing life and leadership coaching for my clients for over 40 years. I coach cl some clients through there for 18 years from being a vice president to being a CEO to being on moving to another company, taking over CEO, and then one more company taking over CEO, becoming chairman, and then retiring. So I've done that with multiple clients. And now, thanks to Zoom, I can do it for individual leaders 
around the world. And so that's a big part of, of my, my work these days is one-to-one with, with leaders. That is so amazing. And I will put all the, thank you so much, Michael. It was amazing, fun-filled conversation. And I laughed so much. Thank you so much. for that. I really, I really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for listening to this podcast episode today. If you did enjoy this, please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or you can visit https colon slash slash nishangarg.me n-i-s-h-a-n-t-g-a-r-g.me You can also share this episode with your loved ones to help them live a fulfilled life. You are not alone in this journey. We all struggle in life. There is no shame in talking about it. I go through my highs and lows. I get depressed and these practices help me in living a resilient life. You can also do this. You got this. Don't judge yourself. You are doing the best you can. And thank you so much again. Okay.